welcome to another podcast from Basic Scotland. These are a series of brief snapshots about less talked about topics within pre-hospital care in Scotland and some deep dives into some more specialist areas with experts from a variety of disciplines. My name's Dave, I'm an army surgical trainee, a basics responder and a mountain rescue doctor based in Pitlochry. Today joining me we have Catherine Buckland. Catherine is a commercial diving instructor and dive medic based down in Plymouth, Norway, where she trains commercial divers and does a lot of work training up folk for the Arctic and Antarctic. That work regularly brings her up and around Scotland and further afield to colder places. In amongst this, she's one of the faculty for World Extreme Medicine, which is an expedition medical training company that lay on the Extreme Medicine Conference in Edinburgh each year. Catherine, thanks so much for coming on and sharing You're your You're welcome. Thanks for having me. It's been a very long time since I've been under the water in anything other than a breath-holding sense, and my physiology is never great to begin with. So can you kind of walk us through what happens when you dive? So absolutely. We generally, as recreational divers, certainly in the UK, will probably put on a really thick wetsuit or a dry suit, which keeps you dry apart from your hands and head, generally put a load of lead around us to make us sink, put a load of kit on that's usually quite heavy, fall in the water and start to descend. Some of the problems with that is carrying heavy kit, that initial exertion of moving, which can make some divers a little bit prone to injuries or accidents. Once you're in the water, a couple of things start to happen, which are really great. So cold water on the face, nice bit of bradycardia, divers feel really relaxed and they'll start to descend which means they need to equalize the pressure that's now being exerted onto their body and the areas we're worried about are ears and sinuses at this point does that all make sense so far yeah brilliant so we've got a hydrostatic squeeze around the body and i'm guessing it's anything with a membrane that is going to cause us pain I guess yeah absolutely and quite often people have a little bit of sinus squeeze or a little bit of ear problems because they've had a cold recently or haven't quite cleared any mucus that's left and while they're doing either the valsalva maneuver uh, or a wiggle of the jaws clear their ears that mucus just gets stuck in the eustachian tube and if they force it they'll end up with a little bit of barotrauma damage in their ears at this point of a dive, if you were to have significant dramas, actually just bounce back up the surface, hop back in the boat, and this is all kind of low. Definitely, this is all really easy stuff to rectify. Something hurts, I'll stop there and I'll get out. What's really interesting with sinus squeeze is that some divers have no pain at all. And actually, when they ascend back onto the surface, their mask will be full of a little bit of blood that's come out from their sinuses. And the natural question is, are you okay? There's some blood in your mask. And they realise they've had a bit of a sinus squeeze and haven't noticed it at all. So it's quite interesting that sinus problems can be excruciating down to kind of no pain at all. Interesting from our point of view is potentially responding to folk, you know, actually, if we're taking the mask off and there is a wee bit of blood, it's not necessarily, you know, my brain jumps straight to big, nasty trauma. But you're saying that this could well be a not a normal finding, but a non-concern. Absolutely. Yeah. Generally, blood is not a good thing, but in a conscious diver and most dive incidents, the person does manage to get themselves to the surface 
conscious and breathing that's pretty much what all the statistics show us so if there's a little bit of blood it's more likely they've now got a headache from that resulting sinus squeeze okay we're in the water we've equalized and we're heading deeper physiologically what kind of effects are happening because i'm imagining the pressure is going to keep increasing as, as absolutely so the main change in pressure has now occurred most recreational divers are diving probably to about 40 metres on an average recreational dive, sometimes a little bit less, 20 to 30, depending on what the dive is. However, we've got a bigger, wider group of people now doing a lot more technical diving in the UK, and they'll be pushing past maybe to 50, 60, 70 metres regularly, depending on their dive level. And just so I've got the terminology straight in my head, scuba self-contained underwater that, breathing apparatus, what kind of depth is that going to take me to? So this is a really interesting point that's often raised by technical divers, because every diver that carries their air or whatever gas mic on their back is a scuba diver, <laughs> because they are all self-contained <laughs> yeah, so. underwater breathing apparatus. <laughs> It's a bit of a, sometimes technical divers don't like to call themselves scuba divers, but that is technically what they still are. At what point do we go from, you know, something that you might do recreationally on holiday to starting to need to think about? That's a really great question. And it's often where incidents happen, where you've got somebody that regularly dives to, let's say, 20 metres quite happily, so maybe 30 And then suddenly they start pushing it because they want to go to a particular dive wreck, maybe. The issue here is it's a bit like running a marathon. You don't go from running 5K to then doing a marathon the next day. You have to build up the experience and the knowledge and also sort of the muscle memory to get to that point. So generally, scuba divers, as we would think of them, we're looking at sort of 40 metres as a rough maximum. Any more than that? your gas supply needs to be more plentiful and also your penalties for staying in the water longer to deal with any decompression issues will also take you a little bit longer. I'm guessing that in terms of responding to an incident it's going to be quite useful to know both depth and what type of gas folk have been Definitely that's one definite question that it'd be really good to know and the, the second part of that is, where is their dive computer? What would a dive computer normally look like? I'm guessing, is this sort of wristwatch yep. based? Or some of, them are, the some of them are a little, pretty much the size of a wristwatch. In the diving, recreational diving population, as with the UK, we have an ageing population. And although things are magnified underwater, you generally find that most divers have a larger size computer on their wrist to be able to see it underwater easily so you're looking for something like a big old chunky wristwatch that's got numbers on it and things like that if it is beeping that is a bad sign yep my brain can deal with that absolutely so why is there a need to change gases once you start to go below 40 meters so we're descending we've talked about barotrauma and the risks of equalizing and not being able to equalize And we also get problems on the ascent, usually due to expansion of gas in the lungs rather than ears or sinuses, although that can still occur. But the other really big elephant in the room is nitrogen. And nitrogen is a gas that we don't use 
in very simple terms, it's an inert gas. So due to Henry's law, as soon as we are subject to pressure, the gas that we're not using gets forced into solution. And we talk about fast and slow tissues in diving. Fast tissues being blood, anything that has a really good blood supply, slow tissues being bone, cartilage, fat. As the pressure increases, I vaguely remember from med school physiology that we've got quite a bit of dissolved gas floating about in our system anyway. And the, I'm guessing the proportion of that that is nitrogen increases as sure. the pressure increases. Sure. If we're just talking about a simple scuba diver, what they have in their cylinders is air. 21% oxygen, 79% nitrogen, and a few other little bits in there as well. But as a simple diver, we just think nitrogen, oxygen. Now that air obviously has all this nitrogen that can cause us a problem as we are descending, as it gets forced into our system. Some divers might change that mix, so they might increase the oxygen in the mix. That's called nitrox. And then of course, we get onto the more technical things where people will swap nitrogen for helium. And that's due to a slightly different reason. And the reason being is that around 30 metres, nitrogen becomes a little bit not toxic to us, but it causes something called nitrogen narcosis, which is essentially like feeling a little bit drunk underwater. And you can imagine at 40, 50, 60 metres, that effect increases and can, can occur and cause unconsciousness. So some divers swap the nitrogen for helium. Having had what I can only assume was a very mild nitrogen narcosis, it's not an unpleasant sensation. And actually, I would have thought part of the problem is impaired You're judgment. You're totally right. Anything. Most divers, a little bit of narcosis, it's quite nice. You feel very calm and at ease and pleasant about life. But some divers can get a little bit confused and maybe don't read their gauge properly. They don't realise they're running out of air. Or there's been cases where divers have taken out their own regulator to try and give air to fish because they think they have a problem. So very much impaired sense of judgment there. <laughs> Fair enough. So we've gone down, we've pressurised ourselves. and I'm guessing with pretty much whatever mix of gas we've used, we're going to have an issue with diffusion of Definitely. gas. So whatever inner gas we've used, because we can't use 100% oxygen, because oxygen becomes toxic to us past a certain partial pressure. And for 100% oxygen, that's about six metres. So that's not very deep. So whatever inert gas we've used, we're going to have a penalty to then have to come back up and let that excess gas that's dissolved into our body then off gas itself and i'm guessing this is where your fast and slow tissue yeah. starts so to play so you might have heard of people like rebreather divers so rebreather yeah. divers are able to actively change the gas mix that the machine gives them so they are always on the optimum gas mix so that enables them to stay down for a reasonably long amount of time and generally to not have too much decompression penalty. If you're on a fixed gas in the back of your cylinder, then you have to plan accordingly. And 
your computer will give you different stops on the way up. And these stops could start as little as deep as 15 metres, even deeper sometimes, to make sure that you allow your body to off-gas safely on the way up. At this point, I'm straying into the knowledge of diving coming entirely from, from Hollywood films. And it seems that there are invariably occasions where people need to ascend more quickly than is ideal. What are we going to start to see if you don't have the ability to take those time penalties? and off-gas? This is where most of the dive problems occur, actually. So the really common things we get with diving, we get ear barotrauma. Very common to see, you know, ear pain. But if someone is unable to complete their decompression obligations or to ascend at a safe rate it's usually because either they have mismanaged their dive so they've run out of gas sooner than they expected if they're a new diver then panic is often a factor maybe they've gone deeper than they're used to and they're quite nervous about that that's not an uncommon thing and certainly for me having taught probably thousands of students now Panic is quite a common occurrence if people are a little bit unnerved about how deep they are and how much water they have above them. But the other side of that is something might just have gone wrong, a kit failure or an injury of some sort, or maybe just a mismanagement of their dive. So they'll ascend a lot quicker because they just need to get up. What kind of effects are we going to see on the body? A really nice thing about dive incidents is that if it's going to be bad it's going to be bad quite quickly so on the surface if someone is conscious breathing excellent you've probably got a few minutes you know to make up a tea have a think about things and make a plan to get them to a recompression chamber which is the only solution for this problem if they've got to the surface and they are already unconscious then it's probably going to be a bad one. And I always think that's quite nice in diving is that if it's going to be bad, it'll be bad quite quickly. So the things you're going to see will range from limb pain to perhaps immediate collapse on the surface, which is commonly associated with arterial gas embolisms. You could see paralysis straight away, depending on where those bubbles have formed. So as you've come back up, those bubbles have have caused a blockage somewhere, just like a clot. And presumably also there's the potential for barotrauma to the lungs through that decompression as they come to the surface. Generally, if you're coming up quickly, you should always be breathing normally. If you haven't got anything in your mouth, if you've decided to spit that out for whatever reason as a new diver, you should be breathing out. Now, the only time you're going to see a real issue with lung barotrauma is if the buddy of the diver has lifted an unconscious diver and perhaps they weren't able to vent their airway and you're going to see probably a problem there with barotrauma that will rapidly become a tension pneumothorax due to that expanding gas in the lungs. There's a fair chunk of physiology and a lot more (laughs) physics than I'm entirely comfortable with. Let's fast forward to the point at which you've got a diver on a boat who's unconscious. What's your approach to to This is where it becomes quite simple. Your listeners will perhaps be pleased to know. Treating an unconscious diver is the same as treating any unconscious casualty, pretty much. The key things we want to think about is getting them onto some oxygen as quickly as we can. A side note here, pulse oximeters, 
don't really work that well on divers unless you get it onto a warm, dry part of the body. But fingers, ears are usually a bit too wet and a bit too cold. The other key thing to think about is to loosen that equipment around them. So if they're wearing a dry suit or a wetsuit, it can be quite restrictive around the airway. So definitely getting that cut off swiftly is, is useful. And other than that, there's not a lot you can do with that unconscious diver other than manage an unconscious person and know that you need to get them to a chamber probably quite quickly. The last two key points there is to isolate their equipment because if there is a death and perhaps this person was at work, there will be an investigation and they will want the equipment. And the other real key point is where is the person they were diving with if they were diving with somebody because that other person has just experienced the same dive they have. So have they got away with it or are they about to be having a problem as well? Interesting. And presumably if somebody has panicked and rocketed up to the surface, there's a chance that the body is, is going to be decompressing at a more sensible rate. On Yes, there's a good chance that if you've got one dive with a problem, you might have a second diver with a problem. Not always. And here's the real kicker with the physiology is that diver A could plan and execute a perfect dive with no underlying risk factors such as obesity or age, but they could still end up having a decompression illness. And that's the real tricky thing with diving is that the dive tables that the computer uses, the algorithms, they are effectively still all theoretical. So that's a real twist on diving, is that actually you could still have a problem. We call it an undeserved bend because it feels a little undeserved. So essentially anybody that's been under the water using any kind of breathing apparatus, there is a, a significant chance that a deteriorating patient, we've got some element of... A, You've hit the nail on the head. And illness. for any person that's been out of the water that's been diving and still has that residual inert gas in their body if they experience any pain or any symptoms we assume that has to be from an effect of the diving and that's where it's quite interesting if you were to get a patient in that maybe very unfortunately has had a car accident on the way home from their dive that day it would be very interesting to see what perhaps caused that car accident because we would still have to take it as okay they've still been diving and that inert gas in your body takes anywhere up to 12 24 hours we talk about to make sure they're completely off gassed again and back to normal so there's potential for impaired decision making for emboli for cardiogenic and neurogenic effects definitely and, and that's an unusual one and we tend to find certainly down here in the southwest when the weather's nice and it's a bank holiday people come down they go for a dive and that evening perhaps they're not rehydrating with the best fluids they should be and maybe six eight hours after their dive they realize that the pain in their arm hasn't gone away and that they still don't feel very well and actually maybe this is a problem that's going to cause them a bit of a long-term issue interesting and i guess it, from our point of view rtcs are very much our bread and butter but having that niggling thing in the back of your head if you've got a person who's got a pile of dive kit and damp wetsuits in the back of the car i'm guessing things like entonox here it certainly uh, is i was, gonna I was just going to well. mention that you beat me to it entonox is 
definitely an issue for divers and it can actually because of the nitrous nature of it it can cause the diver a problem that wouldn't have had one anyway and for myself I'm from the Midlands and when I was a student or didn't live in Plymouth full-time I'd regularly travel to go and see my parents over a weekend and if I've been diving during the day I was always really careful to bring my diving logbook with me that had a sticker on it saying I've been diving today please don't give me Intonox not that I was particularly expecting to get in a car accident every time I drove home to my parents but it was just always that thing in the back of my head that I have been diving I'm now leaving the chamber that I know where it is I know there's another chamber in the Midlands but it's all those little things to think about and you get a lot of divers certainly in Scotland who will travel quite a way to go diving in my mind at least yet another reason to start using penthrox a little bit more rather than entonox yeah. um, but yeah a debate for another day so you've mentioned chambers and i'm guessing for any patient from what you've said probably within 24 hours of a dive who's experiencing a problem presumably chambers are fairly amenable to folk yeah so you and, have and the um, scottish hyperbaric association phone line which i'm sure you could probably publish alongside this podcast and that is the number to call up and have a chat and find out what's going on the british hyperbaric association has a different number but again same thing you can call them up the one down here actually goes to plymouth they're on call i don't think they'd appreciate you calling them at midnight to have a chin wag but if it's an urgent scenario then it's an urgent scenario and you need seeing and whereabouts are the changes geographically it's a great question i've been planning lots of dives up there so i should know so you also have different level categories of chamber so Aberdeen, and this is correct as far as I know, but Aberdeen is your only category one chamber in Scotland. And what that means is is that they'll be able to take a casualty in any state and certainly if they need any life-saving interventions inside the chamber. You also have Oban, there's one in the Orkneys. Both those are category two chambers, which means they're happy to take patients as long as it's unlikely that they will need life-saving interventions once they're in the chamber. And it's probably worth pointing out at this juncture that the Coast Guard's aircraft are reasonably familiar with dealing with diving incidents, particularly off the West Coast, and I guess around the rigs as well, and are pretty well versed in terms of the pathway Definitely. of getting There's, these folk to change. And I'm sure someone listening to this who knows Scotland better than I do has probably thought of another chamber or slightly different information. So a little bit of a disclaimer there to start with. The rigs are a little different because anyone working on an oil rig, if there's diving there, they will have the chambers actually on the oil rigs for treating any divers. That's how they manage their risk because, of course, the weather in Scotland isn't always sunshine and blue skies. And if they can't evacuate them off a rig, they have to be able to treat them on the chamber in the rig itself. Thankfully for the vast majority of patients <laughs> um, getting a, a triple nine call yeah, for a rig is that, that's always a nice to know. Us. But <laughs> it's a really interesting issue with travelling in Scotland and where the chambers are, because you have a lot of small winding roads, which takes quite a while to get round. And what's interesting is that certainly some divers have caused more of an issue so they've done a dive and they've driven over some hills or mountains and actually then caused an issue because of the change in pressure as they drive up over these mountain ranges. An interesting point that we often don't think of in terms of in my mind once a helicopter comes over the horizon that's lovely that's my exit plan all sorted but actually you're saying potentially these guys might be better off on a slow road they can be yeah helicopters will take them we always know in plymouth if there's a helicopter the diver 
on board because they are skimming the housetops, really keeping them nice and low. It's not a huge issue. And certainly if you've got a helicopter, they're going to get to help quicker. It depends on the casualty, to be brutally honest, and depends on what your road exit's going to be. Certainly for me, looking at the west coast of Scotland, there wasn't really a drive that didn't incur at least sort of 1,400 metre rise. Again, a Scottish local may be able to find a better route than I did to get to a chamber. It all adds into the thought processes. Now, you mentioned earlier on about risks of things like tension pneumothorax and gas embolism. If you get to a point where you've got a diver who is in cardiac arrest, so let's say they've been scooped and run from wherever they were diving and dumped on the shore and we're responding to them as they've arrived at the pier, would you routinely decompress chests? It's definitely worth keeping that in mind, that if someone's been lifted from any sort of depth and they were lifted unconscious, that there is a potential they've got lung barotrauma, absolutely. It's not something that would be routinely done but it's something that needs to be checked in terms of your pre-hospital care. You'll probably find that the divers or dive boat or other people around them are just starting basic life support because they don't have any other equipment. And certainly if they have got pneumothoraxes, then that's not going to make that much easier. So it's absolutely a consideration to think about. It depends on when that cardiac arrest happened and interestingly it's actually one of the statistics that we find that gets put down as a a dive incident which is elderly population or slightly overweight or slightly unfit people do tend to have cardiac arrests on dives and it's not actually put down as a diving incident although they could have had that cardiac arrest just driving home so it's not necessarily a diving problem it may just genuinely be cardiac arrest problem but because they've been lifted from possibly some depth we have to think about all those other bits that come into it but in that immediate situation obviously standard basic life support and scoop and run and don't worry too much about any sort of decompression illness at that point. Presumably just the fact that we're going to be giving them positive end expiratory pressure and ventilating them that's going to do a degree of off-gassing yeah, As definitely. It, you, you're going to be helping them anyway. All of the stats show that finding them on the surface unconscious cardiac arrest is unlikely. You generally get them conscious, which is great. But nothing really changes from a pre-hospital care point of view. I know you're going to talk to a, a hyperbaric doctor sort of from the chamber on point of view, and they might have a different viewpoint of that. But from pre-hospital care, it really is just basic life support at this point and manage them as best you can. That gives us a really nice overview of the physiology and of why there's this kind of horribly <laughs> complex disease process that's happening. Yeah, I mean, under the, I've got probably surface. a couple more things just to throw into that. That People tend mm. to, I don't know, it's like climbing. I'm not a climber. So if someone talks about pitches and grades of rope and things like that, I'm lost instantly because it's not my background. Now, if someone was to say to you they've had an oxygen toxicity hit, that might worry one of your basics responders. Do you know what an oxygen toxicity hit is? Talk me through it. So someone has perhaps analysed the mix of their gas incorrectly or they have exceeded the depth limit for that gas. So every gas has a depth limit. And what we're worried about is the oxygen. And at a partial pressure of 1.4 or thereabouts, going past that partial pressure can result in basically a seizure underwater and it's as a result of oxygen toxicity. Now that's going to be quite scary for the buddy 
to try and get this person out. And I'm sure people then would think, well, they've had an oxygen problem. Surely I can't give them oxygen because they've had an oxygen problem. Well, actually, now that we're back on surface and we aren't subject to that pressure, the oxygen will no longer have a, an adverse reaction to that diver. So oxygen can absolutely be given on the surface. But I can imagine as a basic swander, if their buddy said to them, they had an oxygen problem that they might be a little bit worried about then giving them further oxygen to assist them. And when you're giving oxygen to patients who hopefully by this stage are not in extremis, are you titrating, assuming you've got a decent SATS trace, are you titrating and using yeah. kind of target SATS above 94%? It's kind of giving them as much oxygen guns? as you can give. So with a conscious casualty, you might get something called transient worsening. So as that pressure gradient of the bubble expands with the oxygen feeding into it, the person will feel worse and your job is to reassure them that they will soon rapidly start to feel better but it's very normal to feel worse once going on to oxygen to start with but it will improve their chances. What you might find with the local dive club out and they've put them on oxygen what is a quite a common thing is they'll have them on a demand valve which they're holding to their face and breathing from and if they've been holding it with just the same arm for the last sort of 10-15 minutes they then might have an issue with that arm as well because of the lack of circulation of moving around so getting them to switch over and presumably once we're there absolutely get them to switch over um, and once you're there you're going to be changing them over anyway but just be aware of that that if they've if they've been holding that mask up for 15-20 minutes which is about what you get out of a standard d-sized cylinder in the diving world it's not uncommon for them to maybe have a bit of an aching arm which perhaps might not be an issue it's just something to be aware of. At this point in my brain, everybody's got spectacular <laughs> doubles. And, it it uh, could be. And it's, it's interesting that quite often over the years, the instance that I've personally been involved with, with looking after poorly divers, we've got them to the chamber and perhaps as a team, we've hazardous a guess at what might be wrong with them. But actually until you've got them into that chamber, got them blown down to a pressure where those bubbles can start to be reduced it's only when the doctors are able to have a look at them that they can say yes this was a whatever bend it was a limb bend it was a spinal bend or or whatever that happens to be and actually from what you're saying it's not really going to affect my management at the roadside because all i'm going to do is it's super simple isn't it and how nice is that (laughs) to have a subject that's super simple (laughs) no it's not going to change your pre-hospital management and although diving in itself can be complicated it's important to not overcomplicate it once they're out of the water get them oxygen get some fluids and get that evacuation as quickly as you can i'm gonna kind of make a, a side reference here we had a chat with paddy morgan a little while ago on drowning and obviously for anybody that's been in the water it's possibly worth having a, a refresh of, of paddy's chat around drowning my last little pearl uh, or couple of pearls if someone gets an audio vestibular bend they'll be falling off whatever bed you've put them on and feeling incredibly distressed it's a really nasty bend they'll be vomiting it's where you've got bubbles in the eardrum and it's causing them to have quite an issue with their balance which is making them feel quite unwell so that's a really interesting one to manage because trying to get them to calm down a little bit and make sure that it's it's going to be okay we'll get into the chamber any particularly drugs that 
a review so sort of procoperazine you'd, you'd or, have to ask the diving uh, doctor for that one who would know better than i would to be honest oxygen still and, and managing that but dive doctor will know that one one of my other last polls of wisdom and i've said this already but the most important thing is to actually just calm down that divers probably had a bad dive and whoever was with them has had a bad dive as well and, and will probably want to tell you all about it and how they've narrowly escaped death and sometimes it can feel like that when you finish a dive to be fair and it's a bit stressful but if it hasn't gone wrong incredibly at this point then you've probably got a bit of time so try and get a dive history uncontrolled ascents or descent certainly with new divers will probably result in barotrauma that haven't quite got their buoyancy correct and my sort of very last pearl of wisdom is the general public when I say general public I mean sort of the average person assumes quite incorrectly that deep diving is where the dangerous things happen and they are right to a certain extent the deeper we go the more risk factors we have gas management planning decompression allowance as well however you can experience barotrauma in very shallow water and in fact arterial gas embolisms have been recorded in depths as little as 1.2 meters so don't take that assumption that just because it's a shallow dive that they might not have an issue we've been getting all of our presenters to give three top tips what would your suggestions be for basics responders well, i think i've just said a couple of them but <laughs> so a beeping dive computer is bad. <laughs> it means that something's gone wrong on the dive and never trust a diver that says that's what it always does. It shouldn't be beeping. Try and get that dive history. Just tell them to walk you through the dive. Even if you're not particularly listening, you'll probably pick up a few pearls of wisdom. They're bouncing around. They had a problem with a mask or a fin or something, which probably caused them to send more than they'd planned or faster than they planned. And just that depth again don't assume that a shallow dive doesn't resolve an issue and a lot of divers themselves will not believe that they'll say well I was only in x amount of water I can't possibly have a decompression illness problem but you can unfortunately if you've got an underlying issue so a PFO or you're dehydrated or you're obese or you're under the influence of drugs or drink or you're elderly all these risk factors could mean that you have a problem when you're not expecting it Fantastic. Catherine, that's brilliant. And thanks so much for giving the physiology breakdown and the basics of how we can do it at the roadside. And the plan, I think, is to come and have a chat with some of the dive doctors to look at the chamber end of things. Actually, diving is relatively safe and there's not a lot of diving incidents, really. So that's probably why your responders, thankfully, don't have to get called out to too many of them. And long may that stay the case. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Catherine, thanks so much for coming on to join us. That's it for this week. If you have any comments or questions, visit the podcasters page and leave us a reply in the box at the bottom. Join us next week for another podcast from Basic Scotland. Basic Scotland.